Good morning, everyone. Well, it's a new day and uh, a new topic. We've moved on from James and I've been waiting all year for us to get to this topic. So I'm, I'm quite excited for us to be beginning this, this 10 or 11 week series. Uh, would you join with me in prayer uh, as we begin? Holy Spirit, this is your church. These are your people. We are your people. And uh, Lord, I pray this morning that you would have your way in us, have your way in this place. Amen. Well, somewhere in the Rocky Mountains is a treasure chest. It contains massive gold coins. It contains gold nuggets. You can see up there the, the size of hen's eggs. Contains rubies, diamonds, sapphires, and ancient Chinese jade. And it was put there by a millionaire uh, art and antique dealer by the name of Forrest Fenn. I don't know if any of you have heard of him. Forrest Fenn decided in 1988, after being diagnosed with cancer, that he was not going to be forgotten when he died. And he planned to write and publish his biography. And that biography would include a poem that contained some cryptic clues uh, revealing the location of his millions. He planned to fill up a treasure chest, and it's that particular treasure chest there, with millions of dollars worth of treasure. And he planned to trek out into the Rocky Mountains and take an overdose of sleeping pills, leaving the mountains to reclaim his body and whoever found the chest to reclaim his fortune. But it wasn't to be because Fenn survived the cancer. But he went ahead and wrote his own biography anyway, but he was unable to shake this idea of hiding a treasure and leaving behind clues for the whole world to, to solve. So in 2010, he announced that he had hidden the treasure anyway, because he could. And in 2011, he published his memoirs, which he titled The Thrill of the Chase. And in it, he includes a poem with clues to the whereabouts of his treasure. And given that Pastor Glenn and his group are in the Rockies, I have sent them <laughs> the poem um, with instructions to go and find it because it would be nice to pay off the building. <laughs> Part of the poem reads, begin it where the warm waters halt and take it in the canyon down, not far, but too far to walk, put in below the home of Brown. Now the treasure remains out there to this day and according to Fenn, whoever finds it will indeed take possession of it and they are free to use it as they please. To date, four people have died in pursuit of the treasure and there is no shortage of others willing to follow in their footsteps. Hundreds of thousands of people have made the trek from all over the world to the Rocky Mountains solely for the purpose of finding this treasure. Blog sites exist where people share information only generally of which sites they've tried, not of where they're planning to go. Um, and some have journeyed up to 70 times into the Rockies uh, in search of this treasure. 
In fact, such a big deal has it become that uh, the local police in some of these areas have had to plead with Venn to call off the search uh, because every time someone gets lost, their search and rescue people have to go out and find them. And most of these people who go in search of the treasure will not use uh, satellite tracking because they don't want anyone else to know where they're going. So it makes it very hard for them to be found and makes, puts the, the rescue people in quite dangerous situation. Somewhere within every Christian is a treasure that's worth exceedingly more than Fenn's millions. And here's the Holy Spirit. Have you heard of him? Many act as if they don't even know who he is, let alone understand his role in their life. And very few seek after this treasure with the energy and enthusiasm that the treasure hunters for Fenn's millions um, demonstrate. Details and instructions have been left for us as a guide, and they are far less cryptic than Fenn's clues. Yet for many, this treasure within the Holy Spirit remains largely undiscovered and often poorly understood. If you know God and you love God the Father, if you understand the role of Christ in the, on the cross in your salvation, but would struggle to clearly articulate the role of the Holy Spirit in the lives of Christians, or indeed to point to any recent thing in your life, that would demonstrate his work in your life, then this series that we're about to embark upon is for you. And don't worry if that sounded like you, you are in good company. In fact, so poorly understood and left out of much of teaching in the Western Church today is the Holy Spirit that the terms the forgotten God or the forgotten member of the Trinity have in recent years become quite popular. But the good news is that the early church also began with little to no experience of the Holy Spirit and they learned very quickly and so can we. So I've selected a couple of readings this morning um, that we're going to use in a reflective way as a means of preparing our hearts for the 10 week journey that we're about to embark upon as we explore who the Holy Spirit is his role in the life of every believer and how we can cooperate with him in the ongoing work of Christ on this earth. We're not going to be theologically debating or pulling apart these passages this morning. Rather, I've selected them because they lend themselves well to our self-reflection concerning the Holy Spirit in our own lives. So we'll use them this morning to establish our own baselines to determine the extent to which we as individuals understand the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of every believer, um, but also the extent to which each of us have allowed him to be active in our own lives. So if you'd turn with me to our first scripture passage, it's from Acts 19, verses 1 to 7. Acts 19, 1-7. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they answered, No, we've not even heard of the Holy Spirit. So Paul asked 
then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. And Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one who was coming after him. That is in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul put his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Now, sometimes when we read the New Testament through our 21st century goggles, it's easy for us to read into events something that is just not there. Take the scene at Pentecost, for example, very well known to all of us, the coming of the Holy Spirit. And I think most of you would know the story pretty well. The disciples have gathered in Jerusalem in a house. Suddenly there's a sound like a blowing of a violent wind, something which appears like tongues of fire comes down and rests upon each of them. They're filled with the Holy Spirit and they begin to speak in other languages. Now in Jerusalem at that time are God-fearing Jews from all over the place who've gathered to celebrate the Feast of Weeks. And they hear all of this going on and they're utterly amazed. Some of them poke fun at the disciples saying they've had too much to drink. But others ask, what does this mean? Peter explains to them what it means that the words that were spoken by the prophet Joel are being fulfilled through God pouring out his Holy Spirit on his people. He urges them to repent. Some 3,000 take heed of his advice. They repent, they're baptised and they're added to the fledgling church. For us, this is a very well-known story. We're very familiar with it and it's ingrained in our minds as a key event in the history of, of the church. And because we're so familiar with it and because it is such an important story, we assume that everyone at the time was equally as familiar with it. And from our passage today, clearly they were not. The events that we know um, as Pentecost happened down here in Jerusalem. And in our reading today, Apollos is over here in Corinth and Paul is in Ephesus, having taken what they're calling the interior road, which probably means that he didn't travel um, along here, which is the Lycus Valley. He probably came from somewhere further north. Now, there's a lot of distance between Jerusalem, Corinth and Ephesus. There's also a lot of people between Jerusalem, Corinth and Ephesus. And certainly we know that there were people from around the region of Ephesus present in Jerusalem at the time of Pentecost because we're told in Acts chapter 2 of people from Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia being among the crowd that were amazed at hearing the disciples speaking in their own languages. So it's likely that some of these people became believers and then went back to their hometown spreading the good news of the gospel. But we also know that Apollos spent time teaching in Ephesus and if you jump back in your scriptures, uh, a chapter to chapter 18, verses 24 to 26, we can learn from that passage that Apollos was here without Paul. He spoke with great fervour, teaching accurately about Jesus, but that he knew himself only of John's baptism. 
and it was Priscilla and Aquila who had to take him aside and teach him about baptism in the name of Jesus. So whether these disciples that Paul met when he came to Ephesus had received their teaching from Apollos before he himself had been instructed by Priscilla and Aquila or whether they received it from some other means, perhaps by word of mouth as it travelled up from Jerusalem, we don't know. But what we do know for sure is that for whatever reason, Paul felt compelled to ask them whether they had indeed received the Holy Spirit when they believed. And that is the key question from this passage that I want us to focus on today. There was something about these people that made Paul ask the question. Clearly he found something amiss. Was there an obvious lack of the fruit of the Spirit in their lives? Was there no evidence of obedience? Did they harbour unforgiveness? Was there a lack of love among them? Did they lack spiritual vigour or enthusiasm for the gospel? Was their teaching inaccurate? Or was there simply no joy evident? And we aren't going to find the answer in this passage today because it states simply only that Paul asked the question, not why he asked the question. So there's little point postulating. But today as we begin a new series on the Holy Spirit, I simply want to use these questions that are raised by the text as prompts for us for personal reflection. And I've got three further questions today for us, one from each of our texts and a final one to conclude. And the first one is this. If the Apostle Paul were to make a visit to Pathway, would there be sufficient evidence to indicate the presence and action of the Holy Spirit in our midst or would Paul feel compelled to ask a similar question of us? And if he did come and ask that question, could you answer enthusiastically in the affirmative and point to recent examples of the Holy Spirit at work in your life? Or are you not so sure? Where's the evidence? We need to ask ourselves some of these questions. Where is the fruit of the Spirit evident in my life or in our lives? Would people really say we are loving? Would they really say we are joyful or that there is a kind of peace here? Are we patient? Are we kind? Would we be described as good, gentle or self-controlled? Are these really words that other people would use to describe us? Am I obedient? Am I still refusing to forgive others? How do I gen genuinely demonstrate love for others? In what ways do I show my enthusiasm for the gospel? Is what we teach accurate? Would people say that I am a joyful person? And if, as Paul did for the Ephesian disciples, we sense that something is not quite right, then we need to do as Paul did and take immediate action to correct the situation. So let's together use the next 10 weeks to study what Jesus taught about the Holy Spirit and 
to learn what the early church experienced of the Holy Spirit. And as we do, let's be bold enough to leave aside our preconceived ideas and ask him to teach us about himself and open our lives up to what he might have to say. The second question that I'd like for us to think about this week as we turn our thoughts to the things of the Holy Spirit is contained in our second scripture for today. So if you turn to Acts 8, verses 14 to 23. Acts 8, 14 to 23. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They'd simply been baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. And he said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. And Peter answered, May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. And so here we come to another incident and this one is even earlier in the life of the early church not long after the stoning of Stephen. So persecution had broken out after the stoning of Stephen and the early church had been scattered. And this was how the word of God moved out from Jerusalem towards the ends of the earth. Philip was one who moved out from Jerusalem and he went to Samaria proclaiming Christ. And when the crowds heard Philip and they saw the miraculous signs that accompanied his ministry, they paid very close attention to him. Many were healed. Many were freed from evil spirits. Many accepted the word of God. And we are told there was great joy in that city. It's a milestone moment in the life of the early church. The first time the gospel has broken into Samaritan territory and the first time the gospel has been preached to the non-Jews. So word would have got back to Jerusalem about this and so two apostles were sent Peter and John Peter and John pray and place their hands on the Samaritan converts and they receive the Holy Spirit but someone was watching them and that someone liked very much what he saw Simon was a magician and from Acts 8 9 to 11 we learn that he amazed the Samaritans with his magic tricks. He claimed that he was great and all the people paid attention to him. In fact, they said of him, this man is the power of God and that power is called great. Simon wanted what he believed the apostles had. And we also learn that on hearing Philip's preaching, 
Simon himself believed and he was baptised and he subsequently followed Philip all over the place observing his ministry of preaching and of healing and of casting out of demons. He was greatly impressed by what he saw. Unfortunately, Simon completely misunderstood the situation. You see, God didn't bring the apostles to Samaria to impart the Holy Spirit on the Samaritans like it was some kind of magic trick that they could perform at the laying on of hands. God sent them there to witness the Samaritans receiving the Holy Spirit. Here in this one-off case, the sending of the Spirit is delayed and the most likely reason for it is to reassure the Jews. Because you can imagine up until this time, everything has been contained in and around Jerusalem. And now suddenly for Samaritans, people who were despised by the Jews to be receiving the gospel, there would be some uncertainty in the minds of the Jews in Jerusalem. Had they received the Holy Spirit when they believed or at their baptism, since um, conversion and baptism go hand in hand in the early church, then it's likely that the Jews back in Jerusalem would have questioned, are these really um, true believers? Can this be true? But having the apostles there, and in fact two of the most prominent apostles there, when the Holy Spirit is sent, would have allayed any doubts that these Jews back in Jerusalem might have had. Simon himself did not receive the Holy Spirit because his belief was not genuine. His desire for the Holy Spirit was entirely selfish. He wanted to impress people. In fact, so off-centre was his thinking that he actually thought that he could buy the power of the Holy Spirit from Peter and John. And we might find that to be a, a bit of a far-fetched story and it might seem amusing to us, but many today seek the Holy Spirit with impure motivation, what we might call selfish intent. They, like Simon, want to impress people with their supposed spirituality or perhaps they want an experience. There are many who want an experience and they will flock from here to there, from this speaker to that speaker um, to get it. It might be that they want to be slain in the spirit or they want to shout in languages that they do not know or fall on their face or laugh hysterically. It might be that they want acceptance from other Christians or they want people to know that they've att attained some sort of closeness to God. But instead of forgetting about themselves and turning their focus entirely to God, they themselves become the centre of attention. Kind of modern day Simon the magician. Now please don't think that in saying this I'm suggesting here that all of those manifestations that I've just described are false. I'm not saying that at all. But it's about motivation of the people involved. And Jesus said, you will know them by their fruit. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. 
if something is of the Spirit, then it will produce the fruit of the Spirit. And if these are absent, or if something runs contrary to it, then that's a sure sign to us that something is amiss. Peter rebukes Simon in the strongest possible way, saying, May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with your money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. The Holy Spirit is a gift of God given to those whose hearts are right before God. He can't be bought and he can't be earned. Simon did not receive the gift of the Spirit because he was not a genuine believer. His heart was not right before God. Certainly he had responded to the teachings of Philip. He'd even been baptised. He would have appeared for all intents and purposes to anyone who was looking on to be a genuine believer. But still his heart was not right before God and so the Holy Spirit could not be manifest in his life. So the second question for us to ponder today is a very simple one. How is my heart? Is my heart right before God? Is there unconfessed sin to deal with? Are there people I simply refuse to forgive? Will the Holy Spirit be restricted by my motives, by my unbelief, by my apathy, by my doubt, or just by my lack of receptiveness to him? It is my firm belief that the church comes alive through the Holy Spirit and without him, we're nothing more than just a group of people having a meeting here on a Sunday morning. Likewise, the scriptures come alive through the Holy Spirit. Without him, the Bible is just another ancient book. And as Christians, we are alive through the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. Without him, we're just ordinary human beings with all the limitations of ordinary human beings. But we were never intended to be ordinary and reading the Bible was never intended to be an exercise in the mundane. And the church was never intended to be just ordinary. Why? Because we have the living God in us. Sin and unforgiveness and poor motives, unbelief, apathy, doubt, lack of receptivity to the Holy Spirit, all of these things will hamper his work in our lives and in the church. And so as we look to the future and seek to build this church, we need to begin with the individual building blocks and they are the hearts of individuals. If my heart is not right with God, whatever it may be, I need to attend to it or I will never really know what it means to be truly alive in Christ and the work of the Spirit in the church will be hampered as a result. Now, our passages today share two things in common which I think are normative wherever we read about the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. The first of those is that receiving the Holy Spirit is experiential. 
if you've experienced the Holy Spirit, if you've received the Holy Spirit, you should know it. And there should be effects in your life that you can point to. And I don't mean necessarily that you should be falling down on your face or talking in a different language. But having the presence of the living God in you must change you to be more like Jesus. And that should be evidenced by the fruit that you produce. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Secondly, the Holy Spirit is a gift. And like any gift, it is entirely up to the receiver what you do with that gift. Jack Benny was a well-known American comedian in the 1940s, 50s and 60s. I don't know if any of you are old enough to have remembered him, but he was well-known and he had his own television show in the States. Jack married a woman named Mary Livingston, whom he loved and collaborated with throughout most of his career. After 47 years of marriage, Jack fell ill with pancreatic cancer and he died. Shortly after his death, his widow Mary answered a knock at the door and there standing at the door was a florist with a single red rose. The next day, another knock and a florist with a single red rose. The day after that, another and then another and so it continued. You see, in his will, Jack Benny had stipulated that funds be set aside for a florist to deliver his wife a single red rose every day for the rest of her life. Over 3,000 roses were delivered to Mary Livingston over the course of the remaining nine years that she lived. And I think there was little doubt that this woman knew how much she was loved. Shortly after the death, resurrection and ascension of Jesus, he sent his young bride, the fledgling church, an indescribable gift. And he continues to lavish her with gifts to this day. Do you understand just how much you are loved? Not only did Jesus live and die for you, but he continues to lavish you daily with gifts. Jack Benny's gift was a daily reminder to his wife of his love for her. And what's a woman to do when faced with a florist standing at the door each day? She had two options, didn't she? She could turn the florist away or she could make room in her life for a lot of red roses. Who in their right mind is going to turn away such a gift? The gift of the Holy Spirit is God's gift of himself to each one of us. And what should one do with faced with such an unimaginable and undeserved gift? Well, I would suggest that we have the same options available to us as Mary Livingston did with the red roses. You can either leave the gift there on the doorstep of your heart or you can make room for him to pervade and be active in every part of your life cooperate with him in his work of transformation. 
The gift of the Holy Spirit is God's gift of himself. Who in their right mind would choose to ignore such a gift? So my final question for today is the question before you now. What have I done with such an unimaginable and undeserved gift? And we're going to unpack this gift a little more as we move through this series in the next 10 weeks. But I urge you this week, as a way of preparing yourself for what's coming in the, in the following 10 weeks, if you can, to spend some time in quiet reflection this week, pondering the place of the Holy Spirit in your life. Consider the questions that have been raised today. Firstly, have you heard of him? Some Christians haven't. They don't really know or understand who the Holy Spirit is. Secondly, is there evidence of his transforming work in your life? And then how is your heart? And finally, what have or what will you do with such an unimaginable and undeserved gift? It's my prayer that as we spend these next 10 weeks together that we would really um, see the Holy Spirit move in each one of us in a way that we haven't experienced um, for quite some time. We're going to finish now by singing the song which you, you sung earlier. We learned it a couple of weeks ago. Um, but there's a line in that song that really resonates with me when I think about the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. And it says, Oh, how strange and divine I can sing all is mine, yet not I, but through Christ in me. And that, that really is the work of the Holy Spirit, not I, but through Christ in me. So if you'd stand and we'll sing. Shepherd will defend.
Jesus bled and suffered for my pardon, and He was raised to overthrow the grave. To this I hold, my sin has been defeated. Jesus now and ever is my plea. Oh, the chains are released. I can sing, I am free, yet not I, but through Christ in me. With every breath, I long to follow Jesus, for he has said that he will bring me home and day by day I know he will renew me until I stand with joy before the throne to this I hold my hope is only Jesus all the glory evermore to when the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat, yet not I, but through Christ in me. To this I hope, my hope is only Jesus, all the glory evermore to Him. When the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat, yet not I, but through Christ in me. When the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. not I but through Christ in me may that be the cry of each one of our hearts this week and every week now may the grace of God the love of Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and always Amen